Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. A year out from picking a president, derangement is the new name for our dumpster fire politics. We sort of know who lit the fire, but how did civic life get into the dumpster in the first place? Our conversation this hour is with a maverick young public intellectual whom I watched growing up. Matt Stoller has a big new book called Goliath. It's a hundred-year history of monopoly power and democratic populism in a seesaw contest to run our lives. Very short form. We lost our political edge, our compass, our confidence at the monopoly marketplace. Our helplessness in the voting booth is something we learned in our shopping at the mall and now online. Our community habits of commerce, conversation, and choice have come apart. And no wonder we're confused, angry, in a panic about our lost sovereignty. Matt Stoller, welcome back to Open Source. You describe us as sullen, frustrated, squabbling people, as we should be, for losing control over our economic and political lives. How do you come to believe we got here? We're extremely confused, and I think a lot of people are looking at things like the uh, impeachment fiasco that's going on right now or at a a lot of kind of bread and circuses style arguments. And it's not that they're not important, but we're overlooking something very fundamental, which is that over the last 40 years, we've allowed the rise of autocracy in the commercial sector through monopolies and through financial control of our lives, our markets, our communities, and that that has bled over into the political sector. So once you get used to being bossed around in a very important part of your life, aka where you work and how you trade, then it's not so weird to be accepting of people who boss you around in politics. So fit that money crisis into a political election year. The debate in 2020 is best characterized by the argument between Elizabeth Warren and not another candidate, but Mark Zuckerberg, the Mm, Facebook CEO, who a few years ago, you know, was sort of touring the country and people were like, oh, is he going to run for president? In fact, he may not have to run for president. He's actually governing in an important way how we arrange discourse, how we uh, organize our financing for media. He is enormously powerful. In many ways, he's the global privacy commissioner. So does he even have to run for office? Now, Elizabeth Warren is saying, look, that is too much power in the hands of one person. She's making a political argument that we need to make these choices through our politics and our democracy. She's not the only one. There are many other candidates and politicians making this argument. But fundamentally, Mark Zuckerberg and Elizabeth Warren kind of frame the debate in 2020 more than actually anyone else because they're asking the key question of who governs. And in Mark Zuckerberg's case, he's saying, I govern the monopolists govern, the financier governs. And Elizabeth Warren's case, she's saying, no, we the people govern. That's a highly contested ideological debate. And it goes back to the founding of the country. And it's one that we really haven't had since the 1930s. You say Mark Zuckerberg's the privacy commissioner. He's also sort of the the publishing commissioner. Facebook is the, you say, industrial farm of writing and publishing. The rest of us are sharecroppers or else dead. 2,000 American newspapers have died in this 21st century, which is to say the town crier, the American free press, is dying. And we know who killed it. 
Yeah. So so concentration killed it. A whole range of policies from the late 1970s onward, including the Telecommunications Act of 96, and then a merger wave in the 2000s enabled the rise first of big media conglomerates and then big tech, which is now cannibalizing those big media conglomerates. But basically, we have for 200 years from the 1790s until the 1970s, our policymakers essentially said, let's keep our press diverse and our media uh, kind of neutral or, or decentralized as much as we can. And then in the 1970s, we reversed those presumptions. And so you first saw the rise of AM talk radio, you know, Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, cable news, media conglomerates. And then in the 2000s, you saw the rise of Google and Facebook, who have largely monopolized online advertising. Mm. And then, you know, the same financial forces, private equity, are now kind of feeding on the carcass of the remaining newspapers. But I want to make something clear. It isn't just big tech, right? So monopolization is happening in every facet of our economy. You don't just see it in things like Google and Facebook, which is search and social, but you see it in things like random small markets, like bank software or peanut butter, you know, washing machine production, syringes. In every area, you know, when you have a monopolist in charge of a market, they effectively become the government of that market. They set the terms and conditions for how people interact. They set the politics of that market. So today, what you're seeing, because of this concentration, and it's relatively new, a lot of people say, oh, this is just capitalism. But we fought the robber barons in the first half of the 20th century, and then we allowed those robber barons to come back in the 1970s. What you're seeing now as a result of these kind of this this kind of horror show, right? And you see it, and it's not just Facebook killing newspapers or Facebook and Google. It's also, you know, the Sackler family through the opioids killing, just literally killing hundreds of thousands of Americans. That's how we organize our healthcare. They're organizing our healthcare system. So that's why people are arguing about socialism. That's why they're arguing about capitalism. Because something has gone very wrong with how we trade with one another. And meantime, Jeff Bezos at Amazon gets half of all the dollars that are spent online. I want to talk about the responses, specifically in the political campaign. Bernie Sanders stands for democratic socialism, which scares some people, thrills others. Elizabeth Warren seems to stand for regulated capitalism, which we've sort of known. Joe Biden stands for sort of Clinton-era big donor liberalism. Donald Trump stands for, what do we call it, billionaire capitalism. And in the job market, it seems to work. What's to make of these answers, specifically the difference between the socialists and the reformed capitalist ideologues? It's a very important set of questions because we are having an ideological debate. And I would say that capitalism and socialism are just brands. They're more confusing than anything else. You're sort of like arguing with with clouds or arguing with ghosts. Capitalism is not a thing. You know, a farmer's market and a derivatives market, are they both have the word market in it, but that's about all that unites them. So really what we're talking about is concentrations of power. And you basically have Bernie and Warren who are saying too much concentration of power in the commercial sector and the political sector, and we have to, to put the power of of society, of how we govern, to the people. They have to own the property of themselves. And both Warren and Bernie come out of that kind of populist tradition. Trump, he's just a demagogue. He's just saying, you know, concentrate power and put it in my hands, right? And then you have Biden and Buttigieg and Harris and all of these other figures who are kind of transitional figures from the kind of neoliberal 
Clinton-Obama era of big donor-driven finance. And they recognize something has gone very wrong, but they are enthralled to the ideology of the 1970s, which says that concentrated capital is a force for social justice. Matt, there's also a generational shift here and a sort of cultural shift. When the left can raise big money and the center, if that's what Joe Biden is, barely can, that tells you something. The language is changing. The attitudes are changing. The culture changed really in the New Hampshire primary in 2016. The kids are on the march. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really important insight. So one of the things that I noticed in the 1970s, I was looking in the archives, and I noticed that the language itself changed and were reverting back. So in the late 1970s, people stopped using terms like bridges and railroads and people, and they started saying things like human capital and <laughs> infrastructure and this kind of flabby technobabble gibberish that like has pervaded largely democratic politics for the last 40 years because they wanted to avoid talking about power. Right. That was the whole trick. Talk to people as if they're consumers and avoid power. You're right. It started in 2016. Uh, that's when we put antitrust back in the platform, Democratic platform. But now the fight is over power and the language reflects that. It's much healthier. It's much more vibrant. The new story is that Wall Street doesn't want and won't tolerate Elizabeth Warren as if she were going to do something to them. But the main thing she's done so far is find an alternative source of campaign money for a liberal Democrat. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. I think that you what you've seen is, you know, the growth of small dollar donations and alternative ways of communicating. That's been growing for 20 years. You and I wrote about this back in 2004. It is a different way of organizing politics. It's much more similar to the kind of grassroots model of organizing that you saw in the 1880s and 1890s when the farmers were wrestling with the railroads. What if we asked Elizabeth Warren and Mark Zuckerberg to, to duel, in effect, and to argue this out? He says she's an existential threat to his company. Some people cheer that. What would the argument be? Well, there's a number of ways to, to put it. But basically, Facebook has market power over online social media advertising. They have around $60 billion of revenue a year, and that money is going to inflate housing values in Palo Alto instead of to news gathering. And what Elizabeth Warren would say is, look, you've monopolized the social media advertising system by buying Instagram and WhatsApp. So we need to split those up and then we need to regulate you like a utility because that's what you are. That's her plan that she came out with in March, does this to both Google, Facebook and Amazon, as well as I think Apple. And what she's essentially saying is, no, the U.S. government is going to govern. We are going to govern through our democracy. We're not going to defer to Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos or Tim Cook or anyone else. And Mark Zuckerberg's framing in the last couple of weeks, he's been on a kind of PR offensive is, no, I'll take care of it. I'll deal with China. I'll deal with racial diversity. I'll deal with political speech. Hmm. It's, it's about me. I can handle it. And that's just it's just a question of who governs. Right. That's really fundamentally it. What's the fundamental difference in capitalist terms between these new, incredibly rich companies and the old American industries that we used to be proud of, U.S. Steel or GE or big success stories? The big difference is that these companies were born after the revolution of the 1970s when Robert Bork destroyed antitrust law. You know, you see Apple and Microsoft, who are a little bit older, but then, you know, Facebook and Google and Amazon, those companies were born native to monopoly. Bill Gates knew he shouldn't have monopolized, right? Mark Zuckerberg actually doesn't know that. 
and uh, the Google guys, a lot of the people in Silicon Valley today, they don't actually understand that monopolization is a crime and against the law because we haven't enforced that law since the 1970s. Whereas the old industries like U.S. Steel, you know, they knew that monopolization was a crime. So they tried to avoid doing it, right? They were always looking over their shoulder at the antitrust enforcers. And that had a really catalytic impact. They treated their suppliers a little bit better. They treated their workers a little bit better. They had a kind of stakeholder capitalism model, not because they were good guys, not because of the sort of nonsense Peter Drucker liberalism, but because of the law. The law said you're not allowed to monopolize. You're not allowed to abuse your power. Coming up, the hero, more nearly the saint inside Matt Stola's history, is the near-forgotten Texas populist Wright Patman. Five decades in Congress, Herbert Hoover's time to Jimmy Carter's, forever chairman of the House Banking Committee, happy to be known as the friend of plain people and as the bane of the banks. This is Open Source. Our guest, Matt Stoller says monopoly power is the problem we don't know how to see or to talk about. Anti-monopolism is no longer a label in American politics. On the energized left wing of the Democratic presidential campaign, Bernie Sanders insists on the brand Democratic Socialist. Elizabeth Warren calls herself a capitalist with regulatory chops. Our friend, the digital skeptic Evgeny Morozov, cuts through the confusion in a tweet the other day. He says... The left position, meaning Bernie's, is that capitalism is the underlying cause of our woes, monopolies just a feature. The pseudo-left position, meaning Warren's, according to Morozov, is that monopolism is the underlying problem, competitive capitalism is the solution. I love Evgeny. I think he's brilliant and, you know, he was a skeptic before I was, so I have a lot of respect for him. What I would say is that there's a little bit of a of arguing with clouds vibe there. So Bernie Sanders wants to break up banks. He doesn't want to nationalize them. And Elizabeth Warren and Bernie have a very, very similar framework. I think there are legitimate differences, but they essentially come at the problem from the in the same in the same way. They're saying, look, we have a problem with inequality of power and inequality of wealth and economic power. So the answer is let's decentralized property. Everybody gets to own a little bit of property. And that's fundamentally what anti-monopolism is. The alternative social justice model from the left is is a sort of socialism slash communism, which says, let's just nationalize the means of production. And that nobody's proposing that, right? That's not a legitimate part of the debate. So there's a kind of romantic vision here that is not fleshed out of, oh, well, Bernie Sanders is against capitalism. And then Profit, but there's that's not actually what Bernie is saying. It's not what Warren is saying. The only actual path to social justice is break up concentrations of power, regulate the the markets, and uh, and you know the alternative is one that no one you know that no one on the left is is arguing for, which is fuse the power of the state and these big businesses, and then you know use that in an autocratic fashion to impose a social hierarchy. The saint in your story, Matt is this owlish guy I can still picture on the House of Representatives floor for half of the 20th century, stubborn Texas populist Wright Patman, born in a log cabin, really was, a proud hillbilly, he said, the plain people's guy, stood for little retailers against the chain stores, credit unions against the banks, fought the A&P chain stores, and never got to see Amazon or Whole Foods. You quote him wonderfully, saying... A nation's greatness can be measured by the happiness and prosperity of the people 
who produced the nation's wealth. In other words, human values first. There was a price to be paid for those mom-and-pop stores and that kind of commerce, but he thought it was worth it. What is Wright Patman saying to us today? And do we want to hear it? I think we do. Wright Patman was a producerist, and producerism is a long... There's a long tradition of that in America, going back hundreds of years, and in England, too. Go back to the levelers of the 1600s. The people that produce the wealth of a nation, the farm goods, the ideas, the the machinery, they are the ones who should benefit from what they produce. It's very simple. And he would be saying the same thing today. And monopolies and financial concentration are a way of, of putting an intermediary and a political intermediary, an autocrat, who gets to enjoy the fruits of the products and services that he did not create but others create. So it's, a, it's an exploitative model. And Wright-Patman would look at the world today and he would say, we have a giant monopoly problem, we have a giant political problem, and we have to get to work and break up these companies. There are two moments here that I'd love you to unfold. One is mid-70s when the post-Nixon Democratic response where the so-called Atari Democrats, comfortable with tech, comfortable with finance, Paul Songus, Gary Hart, Bill Clinton. And what they really did was forget Franklin Roosevelt and the Roosevelt bargain post-war. I grew up in it. How did that happen? So so this was the hardest part of the book to write It's because it's the story of forgetting and how do you tell that story? The answer I kind of figured out was that in the 1940s and 50s, you saw the creation of a new version of history. It was sort of a falsified version of history, but it came from the right and the left. And the, the left wing proponents of it were was the great historian um, Richard Hofstetter and then the great economist John Kenneth Galbraith and then a whole series of kind of new left thinkers and then on the right, it was it was Robert Bork and Aaron Director and Milton Friedman. And in this history that they told, robber barons weren't really a thing. They didn't really matter. So Brand, Louis Brandeis, who was Wright Patman's mentor and kind of the one of the founding fathers of the 20th century, and, and he really put forward this idea of industrial democracy. The populists and people like Brandeis were fighting against J.P. Morgan and uh, and the and the kind of concentrated capital. And those battles took place for many years and they culminated in the New Deal. And then in the 1940s and 50s, Hofstadter created this idea that, in fact, all of those battles were not about banking power and railroads. Americans always agreed ideologically, so he, so he said. He said Hoover and FDR were basically the same. It's just that people trusted FDR. That was what Hofstadter argued. And he said what in fact was happening was that you had a whole bunch of farmers who were Anglo-Saxon wasps and they were just afraid that they were losing their kind of cultural privilege in a society with a lot of immigrants, right? So it was just kind of nativism. And, and Hofstadter was writing at a time during the McCarthy period. So he was saying these battles that took place over the, the so-called money trust were in fact fake. And that was a, a, the, the farmers were a prelude to the McCarthy supporting small business people. So that argument, right, that big was good, that small business people are a bunch of kind of proto-fascist type racists, took hold. And it's the, it's the history that this giant generation of, of baby boomers learned. It was hard to go into a college um, room in the 1960s and 70s without, without a book on the shelf from, from someone like Galbraith. And so they didn't know 
that there had, in fact, been these battles. And they didn't know that corporate power was part of politics. They thought that politics was about civil rights and environmentalism and, of course, the Vietnam War and the Pentagon. And this kind of morphed into the consumer rights movement. And it was a sort of left libertarianism. And so in the 1970s, when we had all series of problems with our corporations, even New York City went bankrupt, the, the left didn't really didn't really have any answers. And so they turned to this network of scholars at the University of Chicago. And, and even people like Ralph Nader, who, who you know, who, who was not a, a, a for the plutocrats, he ended up embracing deregulation of a whole swath of industries. You're rewriting our, a lot of our heads, Matt, and there's a lot to argue about there. But there's another lapse of memory I want you to speak about, and that is the regulation of the Internet. The Internet, which changed everything, was invented in the Pentagon and somehow got a waiver on regulation. It was too clever, too wonderful to be bad for us. Two or three decades later, I wonder, could it be, is it possible to re-engineer it to promote Patman style to promote freedom, equality, community, all of them sort of unclever, but the good things known as the American way. Yeah, I mean, the Internet was it was a, it kind of came out of this thing called the ARPANET, I guess it was developed in the 60s and 70s. It really is the last great creation of the of the the New Deal era actually came out of NASA funding. But it changed pretty dramatically in the 1990s and 2000s when you know, the pro-concentration framework, which had constructed the media goliath that we were dealing with then and, and still today, enabled the rise, the centralization of power on uh, using this wonderful technology that we had seen, you know, offline. So in the 80s and 90s, roll-ups of chain stores and media and banks and so on, that, that happened online as well. And of course, it's possible to re-engineer it. You know, these are wonderful tools. These are wonderful technologies. We have, every one of us has a supercomputer in our pocket. We've structured our political choices so that these supercomputers are just these amazing leashes on our behavior and surveillance machines. But they could be, you know, the best tools for liberty that we've ever imagined. Spell it out, for example. I mean, the internet we know has devastated not only local media, but local life in some degree, local conversation, local interest. Undo that. Yeah, well, look, that's true. But at the same time, you know, we had in 2003, you know, 2002, the media was was promoting, uh, you know, nonsense theories about about Iraq, and then we went to war. So it's not like the media at that time, which was very, fairly concentrated, was doing a particularly good job. And one of the things that was so exciting about the time when you and I met in 2004 is that you saw this explosion of independent media through the blogs, and right. that that did ex- expand. And then in 2000, and, I guess. Eight, nine, ten. When Google and Facebook started strangling and controlling uh, advertising, it was more Google then because Facebook came a little bit later. Uh, the blogs sort of started dying, and now you're seeing. Well, you they know, got overtaken by of, Facebook. In my well, in my they, no, their their financing got killed. Right? It's it's the it's the financing. Right? Like Google has about 110 billion dollars of revenue. Facebook has about 60 billion dollars of revenue. That's that's global, but a lot of it comes from the U.S. If you just pushed say, $5 billion back into this decentralized media apparatus, you could go back to a a situation where you have remarkable reporting. And not like the 1990s or 1980s or 1970s, where it's it's good reporters, but focused on the interests of the people that own those newspapers, often not paying enough attention to marginalized communities. You move it back, you know, you move move the, the, the money 
um, through open competitive markets. You get rid of the of the advertising chokeholds and the monopolistic chokeholds. And all of a sudden you have this explosion of wonderful reporting from all sorts of people over all sorts of of communities. And that's what we started to see in the, the mid-2000s, and then it was quickly strangled. But that's what we could go to. I mean, there is a... It's not a paradise, because there is no such thing as, as sort of paradise, but there is a wonderful democracy waiting for us. If we can just separate out these companies and regulate these markets so that no one has control of our advertising markets, but so that they are markets again. Happy to be reminded of 2004, Matt. You were a Wesley Clark guy. I was fascinated by the idea of blogging the presidential race. But what we forgot, what I forgot in that whole period was that we have a long history in this country, more than 100 years, of regulating things like the internet for everybody's good. It was applied to AT&T. Breaking up AT&T gave us the modern phone. Breaking up IBM spawned the whole computer industry. Television, radio, newspapers had all been regulated to the degree of not their content, but you couldn't have cross-ownership of television and newspapers in one big city. That's a big choice for a public good. How do we get our heads back into that, that possibility? Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that we do have a regulated Internet. It's just that we've decided to regulate it to the benefit of companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon. Did we decide and, that, really? Yes, we did. I didn't. Absolutely. You can, you can, well, <laughs> neither did I, but I mean, I'm saying we collectively through our politics made a set of decisions through law, the, the 96 Telecom Act, and then a whole bunch of regulatory changes at the FCC, and then the refusal to enforce merger law in the, you know, from 2004 to 2014, when Google and Facebook bought dozens of companies and became who they are. And this was global too, because, you know, it's not like the Europeans did a better job we allowed this because we were enthralled to these ideas that concentrated capital was good, right? It's, it goes back to the 1970s, this idea that consumerism is how we define justice. So if you think about it that way, right, then of course Facebook and Google are these wonderful socially just institutions. They give you their products for free, right? What's a better price for a consumer than, than no monetary charge? So it's philosophical, this is what we call the joy of monopoly consumerism. I mean, it's kind of amazing that you can get anything in the world overnight at a better price than you would at the mall through Amazon. How do we fight that? Right. So, so this is the, the idea of, of price, right, of choosing how to regulate prices. You know, these institutions, Facebook is our regulator, of privacy and social media. Google is our regulator of swaths of the internet. Amazon is our regulator of the cloud computing space and of, of online retail. They have policy teams that regulate the markets that they control, right? They're governing. So when we talk about deregulation or we talk about what well, we need regulation, it's important to recognize that there is no world without regulation. It's just a question of whether we, the people, do it through public regulation or whether these kind of private autocrats do it through private regulation, private rules. And then in terms of Amazon and low kind of consumer prices, I think we've seen these arguments before. We saw them in the fights between the A&P and the kind of unleashing of Walmart in the 1970s. And I think it's it's what we have to do is we have to get back to this concept that we are not just consumers, but that we are also producers and we are also citizens. And we have to ask ourselves whether the way that we've allowed Amazon to control pricing and branding is 
the kind of society that we want to that we want to live in. And right now what what we've done is we've said Amazon is going to control where everything is made, where everything is traded, the prices at which it is traded and that's really destructive for all sorts of communities and all sorts of people, but we get two-day shipping, right? And and they ask for tax subsidies and all the rest of it. And we have to have that political battle over whether two-day shipping is really worth foregoing our democracy. And there are going to be a lot of people who are going to say, yeah, I want that two-day shipping for cheap. I'm going to forego my democracy. I'm going to. I'm happy to be a, a vassal of Jeff Bezos. And then there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say, no, wait a second. That's a really big problem. We can have the innovation. We can have the wonderful technology without this autocratic political control. But it's a debate that we're, that we're starting to have. Place this headache of monopoly capitalism in the spectrum of things we worry about, including especially the climate, but also inequality, also our role in the world, unending wars, that kind of thing. Have you explained the bad mood we're in yet? So we're, we're facing four existential threats, okay? And if we don't address each of these threats, either human civilization is gone or, or, um, and or liberal democracy is gone, right? Let's so hear, the first, let's hear them. One to four. First is, okay, climate, right? Climate. That just sustains human civilization. And that's an existential threat. And then we have the Chinese Communist Party, right? Which is an expansionist, autocratic and trying to extend their control over the entire world, including in the U.S. And we have to find a way to protect ourselves. You're becoming famous for that. That's another show, probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the third is monopolization. So that's the domestic autocrats taking control of our liberties. And ultimately, they will fuse. If we don't deal with them, they'll fuse their power with the state. And that is not democracy. Uh, and then the fourth is financialization slash corruption. And that's where you see, you know, private equity and and uh, hedge funds and and sort of uncontrolled speculative finance. And those they're all interrelated. But those are the four big problems that we have to deal with. Trump is kind of part of the fourth one. So that's the those are that's the ideological kind of terrain that we're that we're operating under. And there are basically three ways to deal with it. Uh, One is you. Combine the the power of big business in this and the state. That's kind of Teddy Roosevelt's new nationalism. The second model is to say, well, let's leave the big big tech alone. They'll protect us, or big business alone. They'll protect us. They'll take care of these threats. That's the sort of corporate social responsibility model. And uh, in in some ways, that's what George Bush wanted to do. A little bit. That's a little bit what Obama wanted to do. And that's the Taft model. Right, William Howard Taft in nineteen. This I'm talking about the election of 1912. That that's where our ideological frameworks come from. And then the third is the Brandeisian model, which it was implemented by Woodrow Wilson and then Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And that is, let us decentralize power in our society, uh, private power in particular, and then we will have public institutions like through our government, our state legislatures, address broad social questions. And the, the decentralization of power will also protect us from foreign concentrations of power like China. And so those are the three basic paths that we can choose. And it, we're all confused because we haven't had an ideological debate in, you know, 80 years or so. But those are basically the three paths.
Coming up, this side of restoring democracy, the Stoller Project is reviving suspicion of concentrated power as an American reflex. This is Open Source. Matt Stoller, our scourge of monopoly, author of the doorstop history titled Goliath, grew up on the margin between Gen X and the Millennials. An instinctive Democrat, he's disenchanted by years of staff work in Congress, he's disappointed by President Obama's performance on jobs, for example, and he's dismayed that Barack Obama himself gets off so lightly for letting the villains of the 08 meltdown off so lightly. And still, the reader of Matt Stoller's grim assessment of the digital regime and its effects comes away heartened by political possibilities. His standard is Franklin Roosevelt's declaration in 1936 that the real project ahead was the restoration of American democracy. Of course, I asked Matt Stoller where he would begin. I think you have to break up one of the big tech companies, right? Because we have to change the culture of business. We have to change the law. And that means enforcing the law, right? We have a crisis of the rule of law in America right now because we haven't enforced the law on the powerful. Uh, As uh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton said, the poor occasionally object to being governed badly. The rich always object to being governed at all. And that's true. And so these guys are lawless. So if you just if you were to do something like break up Google or break up Facebook or Amazon or someone like that, the, the, the biggest guy, you know, in the prison yard, right, all of a sudden or, or throw a criminal indictment at them or something like that. All of a sudden, 10,000 lawyers at every company in America would tell their client, hey, you got to watch this. Don't do these kinds of things anymore. Antitrust is back. And that immediately changes business behavior. Now, you need a lot more than just one antitrust suit that is successful, but you need to to show that the rule of law is back. Kind of like how Reagan, the, one of the first things he did was he crushed the uh, air traffic controller strike. And then immediately a bunch of businesses said, oh, cool, now we can, you know, have scabs. And they started bringing in, you know, scabs and started destroying labor. That's what you need on the other side. You need somebody to come in and say, yeah, you, you it, there's a new sheriff in town and it's called democracy. And if, if we're going to we're going to make you an example and anybody else that's doing this behavior, just be aware that this is what happens. So that's the first thing you do. Matt, where are you coming from? Explain for the people who haven't known you 15 years and admired you growing for 15 years. Where's this coming from? Well, so I wrote Goliath because I was I was started working in, in Congress during the financial crisis for a member of Congress who was sitting on the Financial Services Committee. And the orientation I got was here's a desk good luck with the, with the banking collapse, right? That's it. And I didn't know what was going on. And I thought at first that the banking collapse was a technical problem and then discovered over time it was a political problem. And so I wanted to write a book that explained the politics of finance. And later on, I figured out that, that Monopoly was a big part of the story because Wright Patman was the chair of the banking committee and he had been a, an aggressive foe of Monopolies in the 1930s and 40s. So I wrote this book because I wanted people to know, as I discovered it, that our heritage as Americans is a suspicion of concentrated power, a deep sense of pragmatism. And I felt really alienated and alone because, you know, I learned a lot about history. I got a history degree, but I didn't know any of this. And I felt like if you're not happy with how America is going with this rancid inequality, 
that doesn't make you un-American. It makes you part of a heritage that goes back to the founding of America. And I wanted to tell that story and also tell the story about why people in positions of power in 2009 and 10, my party, the Democrats, screwed things up so badly. And it wasn't corruption. I saw what they did. These A lot of them were well-meaning people. They just made a lot of bad decisions. And it's because they had a false sense of history in their heads about how to do things and what justice meant. And so I wanted to explain what that vision was and why they thought that and the battles that put those ideas in their heads but ultimately, that's what Goliath is. And that I, I want to explain this. I'm, my goal in, is to be a teacher uh, and to teach this generation of political leaders that are emerging post-financial crisis, post-Trump, about how to restore our democracy. There's an alternate story, though, even about monopoly. And the short form in my head is the United Shoe Machinery Company, north of Boston. Once upon a time, I mean, early in the 20th century, through the 50s, it made all the machinery that made all the shoes in this country, and in fact, almost all of the world. It was a monopoly, but it worked. It was innovative. It was good to its workers. It had a world-class golf course on which all the workers had privileges. It was a boomtown until, in a fit of anti-monopolism, right papinism maybe, it was wiped out by a federal suit and a federal judge's decision. Some people say... Remind me, what's wrong with a monopoly that serves millions and millions of people, makes money, and sustains a, a wonderful city of Beverly, Massachusetts, for most of a century? It was a monopoly, no question about it, but Louis Brandeis, who was its lawyer for a while, said, no, it's a good monopoly. Right, and then he resigned because it, he realized it wasn't. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so there's an argument there, is all I mean. Yeah, no, I, I mean, Brandeis liked United Shoe at first. He worked for them because they were they were willing to rent equipment and service equipment for both large and small shoemakers. And then he realized that they were engaging in certain very aggressive tactics to destroy competition and that it wasn't, in fact, good for the shoe industry and it was kind of autocratic. And so you saw, and this is kind of around, I don't know, 1910 or so. I don't, I don't, I didn't study United Shoe in depth, but but it was an important part of Brandeis's life. Um and and because of the skepticism towards United Shoe, United Shoe had to be good to their employees and it had to be good to it, their suppliers. And and so what you see this kind of argument a lot with like companies like IBM, right? Oh, IBM was wonderful, you know, and then, you know, they treated their workers well or Xerox or, or you know, AT&T, whatever it is. And, and it's this narrative that comes out of World War II. By, it was written by Peter Drucker, who said, oh, you know, all of these companies that, that were demonized in the 1930s, well, they built the arsenal of democracy and they were good to their workers and blah, 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 blah. But leaving out of that is all of the battles against these companies who, in some cases, the companies were break, broken up like or, or decentralized like Alcoa. In other cases, they were unionized or they were prevented from expanding or they were forced to treat their suppliers better, like maybe GM. But these were contests. The, the creation of this kind of corporate liberal state was, was a result of the anti-monopolists who were very aggressive in making sure that business leaders did not use their power irresponsibly. Okay. I think, I mean, you can look at today, right? You have monopolies all over the place, right? And yet- there are no golf courses for employees, right? There are no, like, I mean, you know, Google gives their engineers nice stuff, but they have a lot of contractors that they don't treat particularly nicely. Like, 
what you've seen is when you collapse anti-monopolism, right, which we did in the 1970s, you get monopolies and they're not nice, right? They're not this kind of corporate liberal state. A corporate liberal state was problematic in lots of ways. We should have broken up GM. We should have done a lot of things to these companies. But the only reason that these companies were actually good to their employees and to their stakeholders is because they had to be. Because if they weren't, they would have been broken up. The Patman agenda includes the freedom issue, but very broadly speaks of putting our values first. Seriously, liberty and justice for all, say, social health of our cities, towns, countryside. Can we restore that kind of very romantic agenda in this digital age? Yes, we can. I mean, look, a really good example of a market that is working well is the podcast market, right? Because Google and Facebook have have not been able to concentrate audio advertising yet. And they're trying. They haven't been able to concentrate the platforms. Apple kind of leaves its podcast app alone, doesn't use it, doesn't monopolize. And so what you see is an incredible diversity of voices. You see a lot of competition. It works. It's great. 90 million people listen to podcasts. It's it's awesome stuff. And you see it. there's a lot of diversity there, too, in, in who can speak. True. So, And that's just an accidental market that emerged. Like human beings, if we structure markets reasonably so that people have some capacity to, con- to govern themselves, we can do amazing things. And so you just have to go through and use our politics in a lot of the markets where we have concentrated power and either break up these companies or just regulate the markets so that there isn't uh, so that they're neutralized. So that's just one other thing is that in some cases, and this gets to, you know, there is a sophistication to the anti-monopoly agenda, which is that, you know, there are economies of scale. You're not going to have a family operated, you know, steel company or chemical company. You need to have some competition in certain markets like industrial markets where you need economies of scale. In some markets like in farming or in retail or in banking, you don't necessarily need economies of scale. So those can be family owned and operated or they can be small and should be small. Um, But then in some areas like in a kind of telecommunications or electricity or water, there maybe might be certain aspects of digital businesses you know, you these are these are airlines. These can be network businesses, and so you're going to need a kind of some concentration. And but it has to be regulated competition so that there is accountability, democratic accountability. And then finance needs to be very, very tightly controlled. It needs to be much smaller than it is as part of the economy. And the whole idea of this kind of mosaic of policies, you know, going market by market and and trying to make sure that there is as much liberty in these markets as possible is to create a situation where people can tinker, can be free, can produce, and can profit off of their own production. Speak to the frustrations with this campaign. People want Michael Bloomberg in, or maybe Michelle Obama, maybe Hillary, that this conversation is not adequate. Well, I don't think that there's, I mean, there's a kind of, that's the Watergate baby uh, generation saying, oh, you know, there's nobody who's presenting us with the, the Gary Hart, you know, in 1984, right? This this person who is going to make it all, make Monopoly cool again, right? That's what they really want because that's all they know. And so that's kind of silly. There are, there are problems. I mean, I think that you don't have anybody that quite captures that kind of Brandeisian, uh, Wilsonian spirit. Elizabeth Warren comes pretty close, but she still has a kind of advisors from the kind of Hillary Clinton 
type of model who don't really know how to sell corporate power. And that's partially because Democratic voters themselves don't prioritize corporate power as a problem. And then you have Bernie, who does talk about power directly, but has, you know, there's a sort of lack of kind of bureaucratic chops there. But, you know, look, the, all of these, these are these are very minor issues. Philosophically, both Warren and Bernie are putting forward a real difference, a real break from the past. I don't think we need anyone else in. I think that this is the debate that we need. And, you know, remember, the Democratic Party, the Democratic voter base is really confused and and broken in the way that they think about power because they've had 25 years from Bill Clinton all the way up to Barack Obama when they've been told effectively corruption is fine if our guys do it. And that's a huge problem. And unlearning that and being willing to say, in fact, you know, our sacred cows are shouldn't necessarily be as sacred. It's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to admit. It was a hard thing for me to admit, but we have to admit it. We must, you know, I think Abraham Lincoln said we must disenthrall ourselves and then we may be free or something like that. Hmm. Save our nation. Um, oh, save our nation. There we go. What's wrong with our media, Matt Stoller? It's devastated, of course, by a loss of advertising to the new giants, but it's also, to my mind, feeble-minded about getting to these issues, the fundamental anger, resentment, confusion in the electorate. Yeah. I mean, I think reporters have a tough time understanding corporate power. And the weird thing is that, you know, you could argue, oh, it's a Noam Chomsky type of problem where the owners don't want them to report. But that's not actually true because the biggest opponent of Google and Facebook is is Rupert Murdoch and newspaper publishers. So the newspapers actually would be happy with their reporters reporting on corporate power that's destroying them, but their reporters won't do it. Hmm. And it's because reporters largely don't see corporate power as political. There's a vehement conversation going on on the right about the details of business and where it's gone wrong. And then uh, people in the business world and the financial world. And on the left, they kind of hand wave it away and say, oh, I don't care about this detail of why Boeing, you know, is is all screwed up. That's just capitalism, right? And there's a laziness there that's a huge problem. And I think a lot of reporters, kind of political reporters, they know five slogans about policy and that's all they care about. And the rest of it is just kind of a game show. And they can't even see, you know, the fact that like if Donald Trump... If Obama had gone after Wall Street executives, Donald Trump wouldn't have had a cabinet to hire. That's the dynamic here. Like Steve Mnuchin was heavily involved in the foreclosure crisis as a, as a crook, right? And Kamala Harris didn't prosecute him and she had the authority to do that. And that's true kind of across the board. Actually, a lot of the Trump guys, kind of advisors, this is, I didn't go into it. I, I went into this period in Goliath, but they came out of the Michael Milken episode in the 1980s, right? right? They're staked by the junk bond king. That, that's all crime. I mean, that was a lot of things that were happening in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. You know, there should have been jail time for, the, for these people. So hmm. the whole history of how we understand the creation of our politics is a history that, that a lot of reporters don't know. And I, I have given my book to a lot of reporters because I want them to understand the, the, the current moment. And I think it's changing. I think, you know, you see reporters talking about Robert Bork. You see them talking about big tech it is happening. Like people are learning. So I am optimistic about our our political culture. I mean, you know, on Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'm like, there's no point to anything. But but there we go. A doctor's diagnosis on the body politic, Matt. What, what's your description of our condition dreading this 2020 choice? We are 
rapidly repairing the damage that was done in the 1970s. I think that it is unbelievable how much progress we've made. And to give you one example, Sheryl Sandberg was going to be in Hillary Clinton's cabinet. That was the, the, the rumor, either Secretary of Treasury, Secretary of Commerce. And the reality is, and this is what the hardest thing about democracy to understand is, is that we the people do govern this country. What we think and our views and our attitudes do move policy. And when we choose to forego our own liberties, we lose our liberties. And when we choose to demand our liberties, we gain them back. And what I am seeing, and it's not in the institutions yet, although it's starting to hit the institutions, but what I have seen over the last three or four years is I have seen the American people begin to wake up and begin to recognize that they are a, a, want to be a free people. And I've seen the beginnings of the demand for our government to represent us once again. Matt Stoller, I'm stunned and proud of your boldness. The detail of your book, Goliath, and the authority with which you argue it. Thank you and congratulations, Matt Stoller. Thanks so much. It's an honor to be on here. Matt Stoller's big book is The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly Power and Democracy. Open Source is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a collective of energetic, idea-driven podcasts. And this week, we're excited to welcome the newest member of the gang, Subtitle. It's a show from veteran radio producers Patrick Cox and Kavita Pile, and it's all about language and how it defines us, unites us, and divides us. You can hear a trailer for their upcoming season at subtitlepod.com. And check out all the Hub & Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Visit our website for archived shows, conversations, lots of other features at radioopensource.org. And while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter, also to our podcast, the first and longest-running podcast on planet Earth. This week, for our Patreon donors... Producer Adam Coleman has an interview with Alyssa Quart, dubbed The Money Poet by The New Yorker magazine. Her new collection is Thoughts and Prayers. And think of joining our Patreon community that helps support our show at patreon.com slash radio open source. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our concentrated corporate power. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time on Open Source. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.